This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dancer. It's easy to forget that the cultural archetypes that pass for queerness today have historical roots. Some of these roots are merely years away from today's reality, while they are nonetheless distinct and come with their own artifacts and subcultures. Peter Herberg's book Hipster Porn looks at one such source artifact and its fandom, using as its matter the pink papered magazine Butt that gained a cult following among European gay men in the first decade of the 2000s. Hipster porn takes the aesthetics of Bud to critique and re-articulate key concepts from gender, queer and ethnic theories, and delivers new accounts of subjectivity and sociality as they apply to queer media culture. Peter Herberg is a writer, critic and curator, and I'm very happy that he joins me now. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. I've realised as I was reading for the book that I've set myself up for an exquisite failure here, Peter. I am by no means an expert. I'm frankly vaguely, only vaguely literate with the ins and outs of queer theory. So if I come across as remotely knowledgeable in a conversation, it will probably be because I have been exposed to gay pornography more than it is advisable to admit to at the beginning of a conversation. So before we, we get into why any of that is, I might ask you to expose yourself a little bit in whichever form you particularly want to. <laughs> I'm interested particularly in your professional formation, um, how it is that you came to be interested in Butt magazine, but also I'm interested in your work with Berlin Schwuller's Museum. Thank you. And thanks again for inviting me to this podcast. So Peter Rieberg is my name. I come from Germany, born in Hamburg, but I've spent my adult life pretty much half in the United States, half in Germany. My academic training is most has mostly been in the United States. So I have a PhD in literature, researched and um, taught on, at several universities in the United States. My academic profile is mostly, you know, although I'm coming from a German studies background, uh, with a very strong interest in, you know, what we used to call French theory. So I'm mm-hmm. trained in the late 1990s, early 2000s by uh, scholars like Avital Ronel, for example. Um, so basically, I wrote a very theory-heavy dissertation on Kafka, Freud, mm-hmm. and Derrida. And although that training and thinking critically and also a certain canon or archive uh, of deconstruction is still part of my work in terms of the material. Let's just say this after the dissertation, I've never <laughs> touched literature again uh, for from an academic position, but just for creative purposes. I'm, I'm, I'm also writing literature, but that's a different story. So anyways, like academically, after my dissertation, I really became a queer studies scholar uh, with a strong interest in theory and queer theory and, you know, further developing, criticizing queer theory. Uh, and mostly talking about popular culture and visual culture, including pornography, 
wie Klingt Gay Pornography, Online Pornography, Popular Culture, including the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, so these are my research uh, areas. I don't, don't remember, we met not so long ago in person and you were an endless, endless um, treasure of Eurovision trivia. So, so maybe we can, yeah. we can do a little quick fire round at the end. <laughs> totally, totally. So the Eurovision book has not been, which is of course, you know, a huge topic also because it's going to be hosted in either Liverpool or Glasgow next year. So the Eurovision book has not uh, been published yet. Oh, it's not ready yet, but, you know, there's a, there's a research project also in the line of mm -hmm. queer subjectivity, European identity and, and Eurovision. So the, the project I've been uh, working on, so let's just say in the past 10 years, I'm really mostly working on queer visual culture, um, contemporary art, um, gay pornography, And uh, the project that we're going to talk about today, hipster porn, queer masculinities and affective sexualities in the fanzine, but is where those interests came together. And beginning of the 2010s, I had a five-year position in mm -hmm. Austin, Texas, and it was mostly during that time that I worked on this project. Hipster porn gave tons of uh, talks on Butt Magazine, which I'm still Mm -hmm. doing actually just last week in Bochum at a art history conference talking about the relaunched but but also since you've already mentioned that uh, I don't only have just some academic career but also career outside of academia and journalism but also in uh, museum work archiving and curating so for the past four years I've been appointed as head of collections and archives at Schules Museum in Berlin which in the German-speaking world is the largest uh, of its kind mm -hmm. and also one of the larger queer museum and archival institutions uh, globally. And at Schules Museum, I also curated shows on contemporary art and photography. But now I'm mm -hmm. actually back in academia for a while and I hold the position of <laughs> visiting uh, professor at the University of Cincinnati. It's a confusing biography. I'm really... Hello. You know, so switching we're, we're back following. and forth. We're, we're following, and I'm I'm sort of envious of your retreat to Cincinnati, which you <laughs> just 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 assumed a few weeks ago. Right, let's try to figure out what we're looking at. But magazine, I have a very hazy memory of it, and I've realized that most of the memories of it that I have come from a 2014 edition from Taschen Books, okay. which reprinted a whole bunch of it. Any magazine that gets gets reproduced with this kind of type of popular publisher must have done something. But magazine was published between 2001 and 2011, if I'm right. And, and it's very difficult to really pin down. So why don't you, why don't you have a stab? Yeah, I mean, let's maybe start by saying uh, fanzines have been part of subcultures and also including queer subcultures for quite some time. So especially, for example, in the 1970s mm -hmm. from Toronto, Bruce LaBruce, but uh, also Suck from Amsterdam, from the Netherlands. So we had always, you know, local cultural contexts that produced fanzines back then in the 70s in, in a very different media environment. And uh, those zines back then were mostly produced as, you know, Xeroxes, of mm -hmm. uh, handmade Xeroxes, and then distributed and, and, and sent by mail. If one looks at it from a, say, media history perspective, one could say there's a certain promise to the fanzine, attached to the fanzine, a promise of uh, something true or honest will be shown or told in mm -hmm. this medium because it has a direct access to the subculture. It is exempt from certain norms of publishing, or normative forms of representation, right? So that's kind of the aura of the fanzine that we know from, for example, the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Around 2000, we had a um, renaissance of fanzines, particularly of queer fanzines. Um, but it's coming from Amsterdam. We had also, um, for example, they don't shoot homos, don't they, from, from Melbourne. We had Basso from Berlin. Uh, so there's a, there's a huge, I mean, at least 10 or so, you know, um, that started to emerge around uh, 2000. There has been there have been exhibitions. A. a. Bronson has also curated exhibitions um, uh, on this new wave of fanzines. Yeah. Uh, there have been catalogs that document that. Uh, and but is part of that new wave of fanzines that emerged around 
2000s um, and lived for 10 years, as you said. I mean, maybe an initial quick answer of why the, that mm -hmm. happened. In terms of media history, I would say it has a lot to do with, uh, with the internet, because the internet allowed for a circulation of amateur photography, including amateur pornography, uh, on a scale that was just not an imaginable in the first half of the yeah. 1990s, right? So suddenly we were surrounded by completely different visual politics you know, that were kind of fueled through this possibility and then desire of self-documentation. But, and other fanzines in my mind are a response to that. You know, they kind of take up, they, they kind of uh, channel this new, visual landscape. And this is the interesting thing, of course, they don't create um, a website. I mean, they have that too, but that's yeah. not the initial move, but they bring it back to print. It's a so sort of like remediation, you know, which uh, a backward remediation, which has a lot to do with, um, and that's also, you know, the title of my book with the hipster culture, although hipster might also be a bit of an ungenerous title because I have to say <laughs> I ideally love but and the makers of but didn't like the title of my book. They still oh. gave me permission to print the um, images. I don't mean hipster. Hipster for me is a very ambiguous category. We probably get to speak about it later. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just mentioning it here because the remediation to print is also along the lines of a certain hipster fetish, fetishization of the analog and the self made mm -hmm. Brewing coffee, you know, like roasting coffee, brewing beer, making your own fanzine, right? So a certain kind of um, you describe you're describing my my weekends essentially. I feel I've seen. Yes, so you know, like this is the the this this fetishization of uh, uh, as a response. So the analog as a response of being surrounded by digital imagery. I think this this explains in one way the emergence of a variety of zines around that time. Hmm. If we're talking about but in, in particular, but is not just a zine, but also a zine that offers a very specific body politics. I think one a, a first explanation to the new visual style of but, you know, which I'm naming hipster and um, but maybe to give it a little bit more of an idea what, what kind of style are we talking about? It's a less conform style of masculinity if we compare it for example to gay pornography yeah. of the 1980s and 1990s you know we have we do have muscular bodies but we also have fat bodies we also have thin bodies so the, there is not just one dominant norm that allows you access to the pages of but it is probably age in a certain way you know we find very little old people, uh, very mm -hmm. few old people. It is also in a certain way race, um, but is a very white project. I think yeah. out of 29 covers before, before 2011, we have maybe three covers with non-white people. However, in terms of, if we're thinking about it uh, generally in terms of masculinity, fit masculinity, gay masculinity, it's definitely an alternative form of masculinity in terms of body politics and in my mind, that is a reaction to the AIDS crisis. So maybe to explain that just briefly, if we say that AIDS was not just a human and a health crisis and a medical crisis and a social and cultural crisis, it was also a crisis of representation. And one of the points of discussion of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s was, of course, how to present gay male body with HIV. You know, and we have different responses to that from popular uh, media, the scandalization of Rock Hudson's body or for Freddie Mercury's body. Um, mm -hmm. We also have a certain exploitative view on the suffering gay body in general. And one of the responses here was, uh, for example, by the gay porn industry to assert the strength and the health and the fitness of gay men, you know, and to give us yeah. these very buff gym bodies that populated gay pornography uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. Since 1996, we have the combination therapy that turned HIV from a mostly deadly disease into a chronic illness that is very manageable. Mm -hmm. So you could say by the time of 2001, when BUT emerged, those, you know, as in gay slang, sometimes called fascist body politics of 
of just asserting your health were not necessary in the same way anymore. Normal bodies could be shown again. So this is super interesting. It might be a good idea to give our listeners some of a kind of visual um, set of cues, if we can do that descriptively, because the aesthetic that you describe is kind of recognizable to, I think it's recognizable to, to your generation and my generation, but definitely won't be that recognizable to younger listeners for whom the zine no longer has the idea of print and the zine kind of coincides with the TikTok age a little bit too much. I'm afraid I've taken down a couple of citations from, from the BUT website of titles and headlines to kind of give give us a taste. So I maybe ask you to fill in. I'm going to read out a couple of that that are just amusing. Artists is compelled to sack jaw-breaking dick during random grinder hookup with cocktees. That is in a section called Sex Reviews. Another one, New York tourist meets West Hollywood bubble butt for sex. I think that that gives us an idea of the kind of written content that we might be finding in this magazine, of course, because it's a porn publication. It does talk about sex explicitly, does talk about the porn industry, does talk about porn films. But actually, the magazine is also filled with a lot of kind of political lifestyle pieces. It almost passes this kind of playboy defense of, you know, we're here for the articles. So maybe I could ask you to, to give us a little bit of a taste of this kind of how, where it pitches itself, this publication, in all the possible senses of high and low brow, sexual and cultural, and, and how these things coincide. All right. Uh, so let's maybe start by by uh, taking up the word you mentioned, porn publication. I mean, is but really a porn publication? I think that's not entirely sure. I, mm. I'm calling my my book hipster porn. Yes, and you know you're you're absolutely right. I mean, um, queer, especially gay sexuality and pleasure do have a very emphasized standing in the context of but It's also true that porn stars, uh, François Sagar, um, Akos Mipat, you know, like established porn stars from major labels, uh, continuously um, appear in but mm -hmm. that's true. But they do appear, um, you know, next to John Waters or uh, or Bruce LaBruce or A.A. Yeah. A. Bronson, right? So it's, it's a very, I mean, a quick label would also uh, be to call it art porn in several ways. I mean, mm -hmm. just, not just in the combination of art and porn, but also in its take on representing the nude male body. And maybe we start a little bit by talking about the photographs, because yeah. yes, they are, let's just say this. I think the, the formula of but, visually the formula of but is, and we should say that maybe also it consists of usually six, maybe eight stories. These are our interviews, nothing but interviews, plus uh, photographs taken quite often by very famous photographers like uh, Wolfgang Tillmans. He comes up, comes up. Yes. Time and again. Yes, he's he's part of the editorial team. Bruce mm -hmm. Bruce calls him the signature photographer for Bud. And one could also obviously say that the whole Bud style owes a lot to Tillmans's early 1990s yeah. uh, club pictures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or also fashion photography is, is Terry Richardson plays a huge role. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so we have, you know, male nudity is the focus. That's true. I would say, I mean, I've never been, been a butt shooting, but my, my sense is that the butt editors try to persuade uh, the interview viewee to undress and mostly they manage, <laughs> but sometimes they don't. I mean, Michael Stipe from REM keeps his boxes on, for example, right? Unforgettable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So nudity is there. We, uh, I mean, if we're like just checking the question of pornography here, we hardly ever see hard dicks, except when hard dicks is turned into a special interest of the story. Then hard mm. cocks do appear in that one story. We never see sexual action, may, maybe jerking off or maybe mutual jerking off yeah. or kind of, but we never see butt fucking. Um, we never, there's no sexual action in butt. So it's the, yeah. like, usually the models are isolated in the picture that mostly at home or at their workplace. So a place that somehow individually relates to them. So it's an it's so what's in, what's interesting here to me is that yes, it is about sexuality, but it's not 
about sexuality as a pornographic value necessarily. It's not necessarily jerk off material, mm. but it's more about gay masculinity, maleness, sexuality placed in an everyday context, you know? And I think the this maybe this could be a bridge to the headlines you were talking about that yeah. both appear on the websites and also within the magazine. I mean, the headlines are usually funny, you know, or oftentimes funny, as as the examples that you gave us. <laughs> they're making jokes. So, yeah, they're sexual. They're, they're kind of jokes. But the question kind is, of click, they kind of clickbaity, very knowingly. Yes, it's, they they really they really contrast with the otherwise kind of semi intellectual approach of of, of the magazine. The, I, I I agree, and they you know if we think, speak about that conceptually or theoretically. I think what it does, it, it brings different spheres together, right? Like a hobby like gardening and the fact that someone is an escort or the fact that someone has a big dig <laughs> but has an interest in old books, right? So it kind of <laughs> combines these uh, these apparently unmatchable things. And I think what's yeah, the question is, why is that funny, right? And it kind yeah. of is funny, but I mean, one... And of course, every theoretical explanation of a joke destroys the joke. That's the yeah. sad thing. Oh, but, unfortunately, I'm so sorry to, to pin you on this. You do try to explain the joke in your own book. So, <laughs> so, so leave Freud alone, I would say. At this <laughs> There's something interesting is going on when you uh, contextualize sexuality and you don't give it the extraordinary place that it also kind of claims in porn. You know, porn is a porn as a dream or porn as a holiday from life where different mm -hmm. rules apply, right? It's Porn has almost this validated uh, utopian uh, position in, in, but sexuality is brought back to, <laughs> to eating, to working, to farting, to boredom. So it's, it's placed in a very different, in an everyday, like where it is, one might say, you know, you could also wow. say that's the documentary value of, of, but in a sense. So yes, it is. In that sense, I would say it's more documenting sexuality in the context of gay and queer lifestyles and not so much pornographic. All right. So we're not looking at porn. And I think that's that's a good moment to try to consider a little bit the the place of Butt Magazine in relationship to what is in the in the 2000s, the emergent gay mainstream, so that we can try to begin to theorize a little bit what it is that we're trying to do. So what, what is happening in, in the mainstream? I would hazard that in the kind of European Western milieu, the early 2000s are a place of the metrosexual. You mentioned already that the post-AIDS crisis, or at least post the acute moment of the AIDS crisis, gay pornography has this kind of body ideal, which is funny enough now has become become the realm of the of the right wing, particularly in the US. You know, like going to the gym is, is supposedly the the thing that the straight social conservative is supposed to do. But we, we're in this kind of strange moment where gay culture starts getting really widespread commercial and mm. it's in a very, very strange moment when it doesn't know whether it wants to follow this kind of finely free neoliberal mm. consumerism, commercialism that, that I think heterosexuality is definitely subject to. So mm. how, how does Butt, Butt Magazine relate to, to those forms? You're absolutely right. And these social, political, economic, cultural tendencies have also been reflected by queer theory, just to give maybe mm -hmm. a couple of keywords here. You know, since the 2000s, we are discussing uh, homonormativity, for example, right? So that um, uh, certain under certain conditions, uh, race and ethnicity and class are obviously uh, crucial here. Um, gay people gain access to neoliberal privilege in a, in a new in a new form in a new form in a in a form that in a way let's just say in quotation marks accepts accepts homosexuality but i mean in my mind uh, under two conditions it's uh, it's the form of the couple you know which is uh, not socially threatening for a mainstream society and also i would say in a and that's a bit of a paradoxical complicated situation but still i would say in a desexualized way i mean we do see yeah. gay people in the public on television we have queers folk um and other productions we have gay comedies but uh 
you know, in, in mainstream production, uh, gay people, men and women usually don't have sex. <laughs> so which is paradoxical in the sense that it is sexuality that defines gay people as a social minority. So we have homonormativity both on the level of representation, we have it on the level of lawmaking and legislation with access to um, marriage and adoption rights. And maybe to go one step further, we have it also on the level, level of national politics. You know, there's not just the discussion about homonormativity, but also the discussion about homonationalism. Mm -hmm. So the question uh, in which ways gay people in the army, uh, in which ways the access to privilege is not just, say, an individual economic benefit, but also in the context of a national narration in which gay people are now included and also offer them, you know, openly a quite conservative um, place in, in national mm -hmm. politics, which is, and I mean, not that gay people didn't, were not conservative before, but they could not necessarily be it as gay people, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that is an, an important difference here this this offer this open offer made to conservative gay positions in national politics um so that is you know uh, just in a theoretical language i think maybe to to take up some of the ideas and 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 um assessments that you gave about the 2000s um if this is what the 2000s are yes what does how does but this part of that and how does it offer a different world, right? Let's just say this. I I wish I I'm a fan of but, you know, I'm a fanboy. <laughs> that, that's that's clear. That's already come come through. Don't worry. So I don't want to say like bad things about but um but I'm of of course also an academic, you know, or I'm trying to think about this critically. So I cannot I cannot just sell part of me is nothing but celebrating but and part of me mm. Uh, you know, since I wrote this book, this book is not just a fan mail, you know, it's also a critical um, engagement with the project. And uh, I would say that, but is a bit ambiguous here. But maybe let's just start with what is really worth celebrating um, about. But, you know, I mentioned already this, this response to body politics of the 1980s mm -hmm. and 1990s. So one could say, but body politics when they they become you know readable in the context of AIDS, but they are also, of course, initially form of they show uncommodified bodies. You know, if we compare it to the metrosexual, uh, if we compare it to the gym body, if we compare it to the porn body, uh, the the emergence of but marked a moment of non-commodified bodies. Mm -hmm. In 2022, this might look a little bit different, but I think if we look at it historically, at the moment of its emergence, this is what it achieved. So, um, you know, you didn't have to go to the gym, you didn't have to be marked by fashion labels, although at the very same time, fashion and fashion <laughs> advertisement played yeah. a huge role in but it's a, it's a paradoxical situation, yeah. right? So, so you're like uh, showing non-commodified bodies and placing them then again in a highly commodified uh, context of high-end fashion uh, advertisement in the zine itself, Marc Jacobs, uh, Adidas, uh, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? Anyways, so in terms of queer culture and gay culture and historiography, I think but did achieve that to offer a different and alternative model of masculinity through its body politics that was not from the very start part of the neoliberal paradigm. Also, a second point, you know, as I said, I think the, the successful neo neoliberal gay subject was both masculinized, but also desexualized subject, yeah. but certainly has an investment in bringing sex. I mean, there's no conversation about in, in but without sex, you know, you, and mm -hmm. there's no but but completely refuses to partake in this economy of desexualizing gay culture. And I think this might be even the, the strongest, the most important achievement of but. So in that sense, it is a counter project to the normalizing tendencies of the 2000s, I would say. Mm -hmm. At the very same time, you know, but was not just available in gay bookstores, but it had a certain deal with, uh, you know, a brand that is now, now out of business, 
American Apparel, you know, which mm. uh, uh, American Apparel, this no-label label from California yeah. of the 2000s that bought us these plain T-shirts and funny colors, especially celebrated for their for their colorful underwear. You know, everybody had mm. like American Apparel, turkeys or mauve uh, underwear in the 2000s <laughs> at one point, right? And it, this this shows, of course, a process that certain subcultural values within in capitalism are in a heartbeat transformed into a market value, you know, and very quickly, but was could be accessed in this way and, and turned into a value not just within a, a gay subculture, but also within a certain fashion market, you know, and I think that's also a strategy that the the makers of but Job and Gerhard from the very start pursued. I mean, they are like magazine makers, and they come from yeah. they come from advertisement, you know. So uh, they they had an interest in bringing these fears together, maybe in a form that was not as destructive or exploitative as we know it from mainstream media. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yeah, so I think, I think we're in an interesting historical moment where the internet really kicks off in popular culture. You know, the 2000s are when, when everything is really finally open to, at least in Europe. But you point to the idea that queer theory stops being able to catch up with what is happening. And I want to ask you to, well, to give you some space to talk about the, the th theoretical aspects of the book. I'm not going to say that it reads like your Kafka thesis, but there is a lot of quite hardcore theory in the book. So to anyone who would like to pick this up, hoping hoping for a nice history, a nice kind of praise of the magazine. I direct you maybe to the Tashin volume instead. But I think it's really interesting what you do, particularly with how you try to rewrite the relationship between sexuality and gender as it plays out at that particular moment. I think that a lot of the things that you theorize and describe happening in the very early 2000s really have set the scene to how cultural sexual politics or gender politics really has played itself out to this very day so theorize please how do we, how do we try to understand that moment yes from the okay. perspective of earlier queer theories okay I'll, I'll try my best so maybe maybe for a start we can just briefly which i'm doing also in the organization of the chapters um, you know, distinguish uh, gender from sexuality. Of course, they're always linked in many ways. So if we talk about gender, the theoretical paradigm to discuss gender since the early 1990s has been, of course, Judith Butler's Gender mm -hmm. Trouble and Bodies That Matter from, I think, 91, 93, you know, around that time, English version, German version shortly afterwards. And the, the critical tool that Butler applied here is, as we know, um, performativity uh, and thinking about gender not in essential terms as something that is inherently given, biologically authorized, um, you know, and this brings us obviously already to the debates that we are in right now, um, but as performative in the sense that gender only becomes an intelligible category for psychic and social life by being repeatedly performed. You have to um, again and again and again uh, confirm you know, that you're male or female, that you're a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. And if you fail to perform your gender, you will be sanctioned. You know, there will be repercussions against you. The ideas of Butler had a career that, you know, very few ideas in academia <laughs> managed to get, you know, like uh, it's been become so much uh, part of our popular understanding of gender these days of the Pope talks about Butler, you know, like it's, it, it's entered all kinds of discourses. Politicians talk about Butler. Anyways, the heroine or the hero or heroine for, for Butler's 
paradigm of gender um, performativity was the drag queen. Drag queen as an exa example also of how queer subcultures perform gender, experiment with performing gender, uh, performing with the failure of performing gender, and how these investments in drag and camp and whatnot are essential to queer subcultures. So a lot of the, the focus on gender was a lot on the question of theatricality, artificiality, uh, and so forth, you know, and if we think of the the the, the archive that um, queer has to offer, of course, a lot of examples come to mind from, you know, early cross-dressing cultures in Berlin of the 1920s, for mm -hmm. example, to the present. So there is, you know, uh, a... Of course, a validity and and a huge value in in in, in Butler's work, which I'm you know summarizing here very very um, uh, crassly, <laughs> uh, generally. Of course, anyways, I'm making this point because, in my mind, uh, but but did does and that's interesting. But does not fit into the paradigm of performativity, mm. and we could you know on a first level we could say, for example, that. But has not an interest in drag, but has not an interest in artificiality, but has not an interest in semiotic excess, you know, mm -hmm. but but's project is to document the male body, <laughs> the materiality of the male body, the forms of the male body. Yeah. So this is this is very far removed from a from a queer project that is invested in materiality. The question then is, if that's the case, is but even queer or does but not bring us mm -hmm. a kind of naturalized idea of masculinity back? I mean, one could also say that's the that's the ideology of porn. Now I'm going back to but being but the ideology of porn is, of course, also to show cis male bodies in a non-performative way, although porn is so much about performativity. Going back to Bud, so we have a documentation of the of the male body, of its forms, of its different shapes, and its interest in variation. I would say this is not performative, but it's doing something else. It's it's documenting the it's documenting the male body, but let's just say it documents it in a way. And this is a bit of a paradoxical thought, but I think it's really true for the project of Bud. It documents it in a way that is not necessarily reaffirming the ideology of masculinity so we have we have you know we have forms we have bodies that are completely recognizable uh, as male whose value it is to be male but it's a form of maleness and that's you know a strange thought maybe it's a form of maleness that is not necessarily masculine it's mm -hmm. a form of maleness that is not asserting its masculine power. It's not, yeah. we could also simply say it's a form of maleness that is not phallic, yeah? But it shows like male vulnerability. So it kind of believes in the body as it is, but it doesn't believe uh, in it as an example of male, of, of masculine ideology, but it believes in it more as a as a as an arena of a variation of forms of male diversity and my male vulnerability. Um, all right, so that would be my st statement about um, <laughs> Bud's contribution to gender. But you also, maybe you can bring me back to that by repeating it. But the thing that comes up, and you've already alluded to it, that in this kind of dialectic between gender and sexuality, but maybe is a precursor of what it is that we're seeing now in, in popular culture, but has to give up a little bit on sexuality because it's not a porn magazine. It's not, you know, it's mm. at best erotica. The the men, mm. even though they, the men in, in the magazine, even though they admit to having sex, they admit to being fully on board with asexuality, somehow mm. don't express it in the way that we find in, say, the bareback porn movement that that Lee Edelman talks about and just to kind of give it give it a tiny bit of a flavor from my kind of cultural observations of now one of the things that we culture commentators bemoan quite a lot is that while the youth of today in inverted quotes are very happy to talk about gender and talk about sexuality somehow the younger generations of today are not having sex so in a sense I'm kind of interested in in the conflict between 
trying to own gender again, having bypassed, as you, as you propose in your theoretical framework, trying to bypass this kind of problematic need to perform gender, this really queer, it is what it is, less if uh, we're not performing to your, I mean, that would be the manifesto of but I imagine it is so liberated that it's not really trying to do anything other than to make itself into a commodity. But that's another another problem. But at, at, that comes at the cost of sex. And is, is, is that a trade-off that you recognize within your theorization? I, I hesitate to answer because, you know, but is... I mean, okay, so you, you think but is but prepared a certain... No, no, no. I'm, 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 no desexualizing. I'm, I've, I've, made a, I've made a very, very silly, slippery, <laughs> slow proposition. Of course, of course not. It would be... It's interesting that you are so invested in a single cultural artifact, and that's that. But that's maybe more about you than than, than about the world's culture. You tried to make a step further away from from the state in which Butler left gender by by say the year two thousand, and you're trying to find examples in your case study here of of gender not being performative. And I and I think you do actually come quite close to to exploring aspects of this in the text. You you talk mm. about the distinction between pornography and post pornography. So mm. in as much as we so far agreed that the Bible mm. was not pornography, it's an exponent of something else. Mm. And I this is not a very precise question because I haven't taken enough. No, but I, notes, I, but I, I, is post pornography somehow non sexual suddenly? Yes. Oh, okay, okay, let's let's talk about sexuality then, and not just about gender. You know, mm -hmm. and I. I, uh, the title is, of the book is Queer Masculinities and Affective Sexualities, which is mm. a bit of a, um, an elegant compound uh, oh, it's a, combination. It's a, very, it's a very good queer theory title. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this, the combination of affects and sexuality. Yeah. So what, what I was, what I was, and that I think leads to this question of, you know, a desexualized present or a certain kind of at least say lack of discourse about sexuality or lack maybe also lack of public uh, for sexuality. So I think part of Butt's strategy to distinguish itself from, from corporate porn <laughs> was to also introduce a different form of sexuality uh, that is less instrumental that is more personalized, you know, mm. I mean, and, but we have individual portraits, we get the, we get the, 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 the names, the individual names of the people being um, interviewed, they're emphasized. I mean, one, one approach would be to say it brings back the personal into sexuality, not just optimized anonymous bodies, but individually, personally diverging bodies. And this implies also a different understanding from of sexuality, which I call affective sexualities. Yeah. In queer theory, since the 2000s, since uh, Eve Sedgwick, really, Eve Sedgwick's work of the two, late 1990s and early 2000s, there has been a competition uh, between investigating sexuality and uh, affects, yeah. whereas early queer theory was really just talking about fucking when it talked about sexuality, <laughs> even though from Freud, we already know that it's not just about genital sex, but sexuality is so much more. It was only in the late 1990s and early 2000s that especially through Yves Sedgwick, um, the question of affect came into play. So how can queerness manifest itself if we're not just talking about um, sexual acts, specifically genital sexual acts. Uh, how do queer people feel differently? Or how is how does queer intimacy look like? You know, and since Butt had such a strong investment in show, showing non-commodified gay men and their vulnerability, and also had an in investment in showing maybe let's just say more tender forms of sexuality or giving intimacy and vulnerability at least the same space as perversion and perversion, I mean, I mean here in the best and most celebratory <laughs> sense. And I think this is it, it's a it's a, it's an interesting dance that Butt is performing here because I think Butt doesn't want to go completely to, but maybe also sees the risks of you know 
becoming desexualized by talking about affect, but it, it, it also it wants to talk about intimacy, you know, and it's mm -hmm. also maybe we could also again, you know, if we look at this historically, say intimacy has been such so phobically marked after AIDS, not just in the sexual sense, but also, you know, in a, in a, in a more encompassing physical sense. I mean, in, intimacy, intimacy between gay men was a taboo. So, but wants to bring this back, not just as unprotected anal sex, but also as a, as a, you know, being together of gay men and showing this man and the enjoyment of that. Anyways, so I call this a dance because, but wants to bring this back. And, and cherishes this form of culture, but it also makes these gestures of remaining perverse, you know, mm -hmm. and, and and make sure to bring porn stars back into the magazine, make sure to talk about penis sizes, make sure to talk about different sizes of asses, you know, so there is, I, I think it doesn't want to lose that connection to queer perversion while at the same time opening up a different world. If we ask the question whether Bud contributed to a desexualized gay and queer present, would say it can be used this way. It could be read this way. You know, it it has that heart. I think the Bud project is about something else, but it, I think it can be reframed like that. Yes. Well, I'll refrain from writing an essay and <laughs> reaching that conclusion. <laughs> it's my suspicion. Um, you you said something very interesting there, which actually leads me to my one of my final questions. It's just to do with the community and the togetherness that Butt tries to bring. And of course, it's nothing particularly special about the idea that a fanzine, a zine would would have a kind of subculture attached to it. But but in its particularly it's in the online manifestation, seems to navigate the at the time in the 2000s, emerging internet landscape with a little bit of a kind of contrary mission, yet again, and un, you know, unsurprisingly by this time. So it has a personal section called um, Buttheads, and that's bizarrely still online. So people who, mm -hmm. who showed us their butts in the early 2000s signed up for the service are still immortalized, quite a few of them with <laughs> the surnames and 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 you know personal 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 identifying characteristics and this is all open to the world which is kind of endearing and it's endearing in, in a number of ways that goes beyond the kind of naivety of the openness it's also to do with the aesthetics the fact that all the the website is in black and white for some reason the you know the kind of questions and interactions that these these people engage in so i i want you to to maybe speculate a little bit about what it is that but was able to do in terms of community creation I mean, given we're, of course, talking about a kind of cult magazine, I, I kind of, I'm too scared even to ask you about its print circulation in case it turns out, but it was 20. And we're talking about <laughs> a subculture so small that, that only you really, you and Benedict Tashin. <laughs> um, we're talking about a couple of thousands. I don't have the exact numbers, although, hold on, if you, I do know that, you know, we do have a relaunch of Bud this year. So yeah, Bud yeah. 30 appeared this spring in Paris and Bud, uh, Number thirty-one just uh, yeah, came it's out. out. It's out. It's, a, it's out. I might recommend it to all listeners who want to see. I was while you while you were talking, I was just like browsing through my uh, emails because I chatted with Joop van Bennekon, one of the two editors of But This Morning. I wanted mm -hmm. to have permission to reprint images for a book for a different book project of a friend of mine, where an article of mine appears, and he just told me um, But Thirty is printed uh, in 10,000 copies, 10,000 oh, wow. copies. Okay. And it has been sold out uh, since it was, you know, launched in March, the first, uh, the, the there's, there's definitely It's definitely a cold, cold interest now. Yes. It's, it's, and the, the question is just like whether 50-something-year-old guys like me are buying it or whether there's a new generation of people out there that um, discover that. Well, the, the, those are the questions I'd like to speculate speculate. On, yeah. from from your perspective as an informed observer and, and theorist, because I think I think it it matters if that political project had any currency then, its political potential now really does warrant re-examination, because mm. it's not like but you know completed its 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 project mm. necessarily. No, of course, of course. I mean, if we if we you know so if we raise the question about is there a but community and how does it manifest itself? I mean, the to be honest, my impression always was that the but had 
thing does not really work. I mean, I, I have no data to prove that, but um, whether but but had you know as the uh, as the social media platform for but fans and but readers, whether that worked as a platform where people really met and connected, I'm not sure. I, I honestly, I mean, I really don't know. I I doubt it a little bit. I always read it more as a <laughs> more ungenerously as a bit of a narcissistic gesture mm. to claiming, you know, oh my God, um, gay, gay men being narcissists. Who would have <laughs> <laughs> as a narcissistic gesture to claim your value as you know as a but uh, as a but per, as a but person as someone who could potentially also appear in but right mm. to partake in the but. But um, universe and the the butt project was always also making this uh, flattening the distinction between professionals and amateurs and readers of butt became models in butt or storytellers in butt etc and were treated on a on the same level you know as as celebrities so um, but whether it worked in the sense of creating a community through these technologies. I have my doubts. I mean, there is what I can say from my own experience, uh, you know, but had a couple of side pro products and projects like producing towels. You mentioned the Tushin books mm -hmm. um, and also organized parties. Uh, for example, in Berlin, I went to two or three of them and you, uh, there was a certain, you know, let's just say, a certain kind of uh, homosexual creative class that gathered at these butt meetings, right? So in that respect, also uh, the title of my book, Hipster Porn, is really justified. You know, I think that there was a, <laughs> there was a hipness created around the butt movement that manifested itself in these parties in buying these articles. And, you know, we haven't talked about beard, beard culture yet, but... Of obviously, you know, the whole gay beard culture of the past 20 years, mm. uh, but contributed to that and also kind of... Well, I, uh, can, I can append a picture of your beard to, to, to the show notes and we can, we can just cover, cover that. <laughs> you know, just, just to do a tiny bit for, for listeners who are by now, by now, by now wondering whether with academic stuff is you do devote quite a bit of space to the idea of, to the question of body hair. And I think that's... That's one of the things you do really beautifully and accessibly in a book. But thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm really obviously interested in uh, you know asking the question how how does this materialize or is this in some ways effective um, for the culture of 2022? My first response would be more sober and simply say, you know, in a, in a typical cultural studies manner. Well, uh, this is what happens in capitalism. You know, every youth and subculture style mm. is going to be corrupted by capitalism and turns uh, into a commodity. And this is what happened with Butt as well. And yes, yeah. you know, since uh, since 2010, the latest, a majority of gay men between 20 and 50 or so in urban uh, gay hops in, in the West try to look like the boys from Butt. You know, that that, mm. that has happened. So, so Butt... The hipster style of butt has become hegemonic uh, in, and, and probably in the sense of it's a reclaiming of masculinity for gay men, you know, in, in this most simplistic version. I think that has happened, um, you know, against butt's best intentions, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but is this, is, is that, is that it, you know, or uh, is that, is there more to it? I'm, I, I don't have a theoretical answer to that. I only can give you maybe some anecdotes or descriptions. So from my work in Berlin of the past four years, you know, I've been working a lot with uh, contemporary young queer artists uh, that live in Berlin, many of them, you know, non-Germans, non a lot of people from North America, from Israel, from Southern Europe, uh, you know, that contribute to the queer um, art scene in, in the city. Uh, you know, Spyros Rent, for example, uh, a Greek photographer that now lives in Berlin. And he is one of the contributors of But 30, you know, and this oh, wow. is the case for, for a couple of others. So um, there is a generation of gay men, let's say maybe in their 30s or so, that have, that grew up 
with Bud. There were kids when Bud emerged, but that for, for whom Bud was already a convention when they appeared. Mm. And they are continuing this kind of work. Some of it looks very close to, to the Bud aesthetics, almost non-distinguishable from yeah. Bud. But I also think there's um, there's interesting ways of developing this further or also to document how queer kids in Berlin, Berlin Neukölln and Kreuzberg live in the 2020s is different, you know, and it owes a lot mm. to the butt aesthetics, but it's also a different, it's also a different world where this style is already given as a convention, but pictures change something. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, as I said, you know, I don't really have an interpretation here yet. Yeah. It's more of an observation. So Bud's impact on that generation is very clear, but I'm, I, you know, I don't want to be as fast as saying, well, it's nothing but a copy of Bud. I mean, that, that would be horribly ungenerous and untrue. So Peter, finally, I, I want to ask you in, in a mode of kind of hyper speculation, what do you see the challenges for queer theory of today are so we discussed a little mm. bit, you know, what what it is that Butt managed to achieve and how it applies to Neukölln Berlin circa 2022. But queer theory, of course, is in a in a place in terms of its its exposure in terms of its role in culture generally on a completely different level. Not only is it addressing different audiences, different expressions of gender and sexuality, it also has a very very different relationship to capital and and globalization. So what's what's on your wish list? What what does what does queer theory need to do now to to save itself from well both cultural appropriation and this kind of complete explosion of of its unwitting success at, in certain senses? Mm. I'm old fashioned in this respect and I am <laughs> you know what I've also done with the book in a way I do promote a return to the beginning of queer theory, um, mm. not to ignore the also in parts very just demands that have been made <clears throat> on queer theory in the past 15 years, but um, primarily because I see it as a huge problem. I see the desexualizing tendencies within queer theory as a, as a huge problem, you know? Mm. And I think, for example, if gay men have anything to contribute to queer sex, it's about, you know, we have to talk about fisting, we have to talk about drugs, we have to talk about, we have to about the gay sex life and we have to mm -hmm. explore how, what that does to people, how relationships are being changed through that. And if we, you know, and that's, if we put a taboo on that, which is even stranger to me, because I think that the pharmaceutical changes of the past 15 years, you know, treatment as prevention for HIV positive yeah. people, and also um, Truvada PrEP as a prophylaxa against HIV prevention, and the online connectivity created a new sexual culture in which, you know, factually, gay men, for example, are very experimental <laughs> in their behavior, mm -hmm. and are very creative in, in, you know, not having new experiences, but also new forms of relationships. This used to be the source for queer theory but it's completely these days it's with a few exceptions completely cut off from queer theory no one talks about contemporary gay sexual culture anymore that's a huge problem and you know a couple of people including most famously maybe tim dean who has just published also a book on why america hates sex uh, i think this is this is something we totally have to go back to. Um, but I also want to say, I don't mean this by um, ignoring the turns of queer theory of the past 15 years. That's also very important to me. You know, I think the queer of color critique by Jose Munoz and others um, was very justified. And I think to, uh, to politicize queer also in a way by connecting it to other subject positions and identities that have not been uh, part of the queer conversation so much in the 1990s is unnecessary and we don't want to fall back behind that. The question is, of course, and that's not just a question for queer, but for the post-colonial discourse and you know, for most cultural forms of criticism on the left, uh, how, do we, how do we escape the traps of identity politics? How can we make mm -hmm. the claim for identities that are in a on a certain level of political business 
completely necessary because otherwise you're not represented and you cannot make political claims. But how do we how do we escape the traps that come with these forms of categorizations? And I, okay, that's a question <laughs> and a different oh, well. conversation. Yeah, I mean that. That I think that's an important question to be able to find a way to salvage what's left of critical theory or in the original, as you were characterizing it, in a way that it can not stand, find itself in complete opposition with this kind of contemporary manifestations that rely so heavily of, on identity politics. And it's not like the the job is is done. The fact that identity politics is so entwined with capital that it's essentially just self-destructing, that doesn't necessarily let the originals of, of critical theory and queer theory off the hook. So it's very heartening to hear you talk about sexu sexuality and sex as you know as, as sort of processes that mechanistically need to be considered. I wrote a text recently trying to think a little bit about the relationship between morality and biopolitics where it came mm. to the monkeypox vaccine. Mm. And I thought about my own experience of going to a sexual health clinic, um, Dean Street Express, which happens to be the busiest sex sexual health clinic in Europe, where everything is done by QR code. You, you know, if you if you if you do drugs and you do fisting and you go to chemsex parties, you don't tell a person that, you tell an iPad that. And mm. of course it's all super not, not judgmental. They text you, they everything is fine. But mm. When I when I went once to a more old-fashioned clinic, suddenly for the first time in maybe 15 years of, of me being an adult and thinking about these things, someone was asking me why I was having a particular type of type of sex. Like, now, what was the morality of this? Oh, should you be doing this? And I've just realized that actually by not talking about sex in very explicit terms, we have got to a point where, well, whoever has the easiest solution decides how these things play yeah. out play out so yeah. monkeypox maybe maybe rightly from a utilitarian point of view everyone politely queued up to get vaccinated but it was for me this kind of moment where you realize oh we don't have an apparatus to talk about yeah. the relationship between sex and what it means for individuals for communities yeah. and these are the things that things like queer theory one of the early exponents of being yeah. able to talk about sexuality without giggling was yeah. supposed to be able to do um, yeah. when that's been relegated into into the realm of social conservatives and there's the fact that it's right wingers who have to ask about should gay men be fucking while well, there's a virus act the fact that that brings back the conversations from the 80s yeah. and whatever the gay community if it still constitutes itself like that has no answer to that should yeah. be slightly frightening it's a yeah i think i mean maybe just a last word on that i think I mean, academia doesn't want to talk about sex. You know, that's that's for sure. Mm -hmm. I think there was a window between 1987 and 1997 where this was made possible, especially in North American academia. And it was made possible, again, a bit paradoxically through HIV and AIDS. I think mm -hmm. that the I think that the impact on AIDS, of AIDS was so violent and it was so by the late 1980s, it was so, especially again in North America with its different health um, plan system, et cetera, and a different political culture um, and all of that. So that there was an urgency to responding to it intellectually that was exceptional. And I think this made queer theory as a conversation about sexualities um, possible. But <laughs> at the same time, you know, the majority of people in academia or academia as an institution was also quite happy when this was no longer necessary. Um, Peter, thank you. I have one one last question, which is um, who should we look out for in the next Eurovision? <laughs> <laughs> ah, I mean, it's too early to say because, as you know, the, the, the entries are not being submitted until the beginning of the year. I presume you have some insider knowledge. But... <laughs> I cannot because, the honestly, like the... I think maybe for one or two uh, candidates, nothing has been decided yet. What I can, how I can answer the question is, of course, you know, um, there's always a specific constellation where, certain, I mean, there's always surprises, yes, but there's also always a specific constellation where certain countries have an investment in Eurovision and certain countries don't. Uh, and we could say just very briefly 
the heydays of Eastern Europe are over. That was the 2000s, you know, analogously. So the times when when Serbia and, um, mm. you know, other countries had a very strong, Russia had a very strong interest in winning Eurovision uh, and, you know, got, got the best Swedish producers and songwriters to get a catchy tune that would appeal to all of Europe. Um, that time is over for a couple of reasons. You know, I think they... Uh, arrived in Europe, including the European Union in different ways. It's also an economic question, of course. You know, uh, uh, Eurovision is also expensive. Not everybody wants to yeah. win at Eurovision because it's expensive. I know the UK is doing it uh, now oh, voluntarily. Please, please don't, 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 don't know. I mean, at the moment, it's turning out quite well because we our, our currency is so weak that we would desperately need all the tourists to turn up and spend a little bit of whatever they have. But... I mean, I, I love the UK to be the host next year, but that's you know, I, I totally do. I think it's a it's a really very interesting moment of, you know, not just with becoming second this year, but also with hosting it, uh, having a look of how what that does to your UK your vision culture, which on the one hand is so totally important for uh, your vision and and mm -hmm. and the discourse and the culture of your vision, while at the same time, you know, with um, the cynicism, not just irony, but also the cynicism with which uh, UK participation in your vision has been met. You know, uh, to 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 look at that uh, while the contest is in the UK, that will be very interesting to me. Anyways, and and also a way of bringing UK back to Europe in a way. Anyways, but that's a different story. <laughs> good luck, good luck with that. I'll come back to you for, for tips closer to the time, and definitely but, uh, look forward to your book, your next book. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for the book. Thank you for taking the time and for the interest. Hips the Porn, Queer Masculinities and Effective Sexualities in the Fanzine Butt by Peter Hebert is published by Routledge. I'm Pierre Dancer and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thanks for listening and join us next time.